Hello everybody and welcome back to Nablo Storytime, the only podcast you will ever want to hear and the only audiobook you shall ever desire to listen to. <laughs> so um, how are you? First of all, I'm doing good. It's been a while. I am very well aware of that. If you're a regular listener, then please let me know what you've been thinking so far because you've been following me on a very interesting journey. The journey of reading, the journey of knowledge, <laughs> self-discovery and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you are new here, I'm just going to say what I always say. I don't enjoy reading. I am dyspraxic and it means that I struggle with reading and it's like a chore for me but I'm trying to fix that which is basically why I made this audiobook and also for some other reasons which if you're interested you can go listen to the first episode. But yeah it's been a while and this has been on my mind a lot but because it's not something I enjoy um, I never want to force myself you know. Oh I don't know if you heard that but I just got some mail. Anyhow Ignore all of that. That was my intro. Hope you've been good. A lot has happened to me. Not bad, I should add. Um, but I've been really busy. And at the moment, I'm taking a little break from work to record this. I'm really excited, though, because um, I wanted to do something special. So I looked for a book about Hazaras because... Um, hmm, because I think we need to make more effort to educate ourselves on minority groups and communities. And they are definitely one that are not very appreciated and face... A lot of discrimination, violence, persecution. Um, this is a simplification. You can read more if you want to, but also you can just listen to this episode. So today, I will be reading the Hazaras of Afghanistan, which, you know, Afghanistan, if you want to be American. It is a historical, cultural, economic and political study by S.A. Mousavi. I hope I said that right. I'm accessing this on a website called Z Library, so if you're interested in reading books for free, well, I mean, you can pay for it as well. You can check that out. So that's my intro, and now I'm going to start with the introduction, which is on page 20, so it took a while to get to the point, but it's fine. Page 20, let's go. Actually, what time is it? Um, okay, cool. Whew, I my um, Oh my god, I'm so nervous, it's been a while down. I'll take off my cardigan for this real quick. Okay. The Hazaras are one of Afghanistan's some 50-odd ethnic groups. With the exception of Lutfi, oh my god, that's a big name, Termikanov study from 1980 and Polody's monographic history of the Hazaras, 1989, on the social history of the Hazaras during the last 100 years, no serious study has been undertaken which looks at the history, politics, economic and social conditions of the Hazaras. What little has been written on Hazaras by foreign scholars has been either a const no a constituent oh my god my words part of uh, other wider studies such as those on nomadism or in Afghanistan in general in which the Hazaras have only received passing mention that's a shame um, in both cases the information offered has been based on what I refer to as scientific rumors rather than findings on Afghanistan a view which I hope will become clear to the reader as this book unfolds. So what I understand from all those big words is that people never make Hazaras the focus of a research topic and they never really back up their claims with proper research. That's what it sounds like. Where did I leave off? Um, Okay, cool. Work on the Hazaras by Afghanistani scholars such as... Oh man. Kharjistani, Yazdani, Polidi and Lali have generally originated from personal interest and lack analytical scholarship. Ooh, okay. Um, or else are based on the work of foreign scholars whose flaws I have already referred to. I like this person. I think it's a guy. 
I love the vibes. It's sassy from the get-go. Does not hide behind flowery words. I like that. So the aim of this book is first and foremost to study the Hazaras. As such, it is the first scholarly study in this field. Okay, we have already noted that, but it's fine. Insofar as it is the first study of its kind on the Hazaras, it cannot but provide an introduction to Hazarology. For, uh, furthermore, <laughs> while the book deals with the Hazaras from ancient times in general terms, it concentrates on the last hundred years of the development of Hazara society. The reason for this is to relate the somewhat academic study of Hazara society to contemporary Afghanistan. The study of Hazaras, however, also requires a new approach to the study of Afghanistan itself. This is because any serious study of the Hazaras will undermine and bring into question the traditionally and currently dominant view of Afghanistan. This accepted view... Oh no, I changed the page. Sorry, one second. Oh my god. No, this is the problem with digital reading, to be honest. Okay. Um, this accepted view of Afghanistan is based on what I refer to as, an, uh, as the Afghan nationalist view of the country's history and society. Okay, that sounds like a problem to me. Um, Afghan nationalism discussed in more detail later on in this introduction was the outcome of the end of colonial rule in the region. It was an ideology created and sustained by the Afghan or Pashtun people with the aim of establishing political control over the area known today as Afghanistan. In order to exercise this control, it needed to deny the existence of the area's other ethnic groups, cultures and languages. To do this, it had to rewrite history and redefine the area's cultural heritage so that what the outside world got to know as Afghanistan was a country inhabited for thousands of years by the Afghan or Pashtun people, whose language was Pashto, an ancient language of the region, i.e. a narrow exclusive view. A new approach to the study of Afghanistan will, by contrast, view the country from the experiences and history of its 50 or more other ethnic groups, one of the largest and most oppressed of whom are the Hazaras. Although it's not the aim of this study to cover this ground, in view of what has been said, I believe an introduction to the historical background of modern-day Afghanistan and to view this approach is necessary before we begin our study of the Hazaras. Okay, so it sounds like we're about to dive into some context. Let's go. Khorasan or Afghanistan. The country known today as Afghanistan was, until 150 years ago, called Khorasan. While its geographic boundaries change frequently, Khorasan at any one time was a bigger country than today's Afghanistan. And then they reference somebody's book. Um, the present boundaries and the new name of Afghanistan have been gradually formalised over the last hundred years or so. Historically, the name Afghanistan emerged from socio-political developments in the area during the second half of the 18th century. The collapse of the Safavids, uh, 15,000 to 1736, followed by the assassination of Nadir Shah of Shah, which was um, 1736 to 47, in Iran to the west of Khorasan, along with the breakup of the Mughal Empire, um, 1500 to 1800, in India, and to the east of Khorasan on the one end, and the expansion of the stre uh, strengthening of some place in Russia, <laughs> and British India to the north and east of Khorasan on the other hand. This is a very, very long sentence. Oh my god. Whew. Brought about fundamental upheavals in the political and social structures within the region. Pause, pause. So, um, if you're new here, this concept, like, this structure, let's say, of me reading might sound a bit strange to you. 
please do not misunderstand how I'm reading this as disrespect because it's not like that at all. I just struggle with reading and um, I noticed that a lot of, I mean obviously this is kind of like an essay, there's a lot of references of people's names and big words and it's just like, it's just a lot. So what I like to do when I read stuff, especially for this podcast, is give my own views and interject them every now and then. And also just try and simplify things because I feel like um, people overcomplicate things in order to sound a certain way. And sometimes it's not even with that intention, but I just think it's not necessary half the time. So anyway, moving on, moving on, moving on. The result was the emergence of new borders and frontiers, nations and countries. The Persian Empire based as it was on a federal structure comprising essentially large and small independent federations of local rulers, each with a different nationality, language, culture and region, broke down. During the next century, two separate countries emerged as a result of this breakdown, with the boundaries of the old empire, one became Iran and the other Afghanistan. See, I didn't know that. I learned something new today, that's kind of cool. Um, What is interesting in the case of Afghanistan is that this newly created country remained nameless for over a century, even to its own founder, Ahmed Khan, uh, 1747-72. Indeed, in two very important documents remaining from this period, the name of Afghanistan is never used. The question of how a newly founded country can remain nameless can only be answered by speculation. However, one thing can be ascertained. The study of documents from this period reveals that during this period, which lasted for nearly a century, the name Khorasan was widely used, while Ahmed Khan, I mean, I doubt that's how you pronounce it, that's a very Pakistani way of saying it. What would he be? Ahmed Khan? Does it matter? Okay, it doesn't matter, sorry. Um, Is believed to have regarded himself as the king of Khorasan, according to Farhang. And then we have a quote, I believe it is, anyway. The state founded during the mid-18th century by Ahmed Shah Abdali was known by the name of Khorasan during his own reign. It is said of Sabir Shah, advisor and consul to Ahmed Shah, that in a conversation with the ruler of Lahore, oh my god, Pakistan, yes, hmm, it's making sense now, the former is alleged to have said, he, Ahmed Shah, is the king of Khorasan, and you are a Sabadil, governor of the king of Hindustan. End quote. Similarly, Mahmud Afsar, Afshar maintains, much literature and poetry have been produced in Farsi in Afghanistan, previously known as Khorasan, by Khorasanians. Khorasanians? Sanians? Oh my god. Um, Khorasan was used as the official name of the country by indigenous historians of the time until the second half of the 19th century. In this respect, Farhang wrote, Nur Muhammad... Okay, hold on. One second, let me read this myself. Um, there's a quote but I'm not going to read it because there's too many names in that. Respectfully, we shall move on to the next paragraph. Foreign writers have also noted that until the last decade of the 19th century, the inhabitants of Afghanistan called their country by the name Khorasan. Reverti writes, This country, or sorry, the country immediately west of the Great Western Range, aka mountains, um, is what Afghanistan's always style Khorasan. And then moving on. Someone else who travelled to Afghanistan during the first half of the 19th century and who resided for some time at the court of Amir Dost, Muhammad Khan, has entitled his book A Personal Narrative of a Visit of Ghazni, Kabul and Afghanistan. The title appears to indicate that the name Afghanistan had limited use, referring only to the areas inhabited by the Afghans, 
um, that is the Suleiman, what? Suleiman Mountains and its environs. Pause. Oh, so many names. Oh my goodness. Okay, continue again. Despite much evidence, however, because of the sensitivity of the ruling Afghans, no serious or thorough study has so far been allowed to establish exactly when, by whom, and for what reason the name Afghanistan took place took the place of Khorasan. The only relevant document at hand indicates that the name of Afghanistan in its present context was first used in an agreement between Iran and Britain in 1801. It is thus possible to conjecture that even the name Afghanistan was chosen by foreign powers and for the people of Afghanistan rather than the people of the land themselves. Yeah, I'm glad he wrote that because of kind of what I was thinking. Like Britain, I mean, I guess, and Iran in this case, but Britain really likes to get involved in a lot of things that do not concern them. (sighs) But anyway, the name Afghanistan, which is a Farsi compound name, is composed of the two words Afghan and, or Afghan and Stan. Stan? Oh my god, I can't think. Which means place and land. Um, So it means the place or land of Afghans. As such, it referred originally only to the areas inhabited entirely or mostly by Afghans, i.e. the area covering Kandahar and its environs up to the Sindh River. Um, Before 1800, the term had never been used to refer to the whole of the country Stan in Farsi is a very commonly used place suffix, um, such as in, and then they list a bunch of places, and place names such as, and then a bunch of places, and so on. So the use of this suffix denotes an entire country, however, is a relatively new usage, lending further support to the claim that Afghanistan is a recently forged name, so that in today's Afghanistan, we also have Nuristan and Turkestan. Yeah, that's true. And until the turn of the century, we also had Hazaristan. Wow, okay. Um, Afghanistan is, as it is known today, is a country composed of different ethnic groups, only one of which are the Afghans or Pashtuns. The use of the name Afghanistan as the name of the entire country signals at once a monopoly of power and the enforcement of Afghan identity on non-Afghans and the denial of the respective identities of the other peoples inhabiting the land. It is for this reason that the name has never been accepted by the other ethnic groups inhabiting Afghanistan, a fact apparently little known outside, but taken for granted within Afghanistan. Khorasan, on the other hand, is regarded as making no reference to any particular tribal group, and as the historical name of the land for several centuries is respected and commonly used. Furthermore, it refers to an identifiable literary and cultural heritage found in thousands of Farsi volumes on history, philosophy, science, geography and poetry, produced over some 14 centuries. Interestingly, the Hazaras who migrated to Iran during the 1890s still refer to themselves as Khavari, a variation on the adjective Khorasan. It is exactly in this respect that it's possible to refer to the Hazaras, Afghans, Nuristanis, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Turkmens, Pashais, Bulachi, no, Baluchis, uh, Arabs, Jats, Hindus, and other inhabitants of the country of Khorasani, a name under which they have lived happily for centuries. Khorasan was a country in whose cultural, economic, and political development they have taken part without submission to domination or monopoly of power by any one nationality or, or tribe.
It is thus incorrect to call the other ethnic groups in the country Afghan, or to refer to their country as Afghanistan or Afghan land. To do so is without linguistic or historic justification. In the same way, we cannot refer to Great Britain as just England, Scotland or Wales, for to do so would imply one national identity and deny the cultural identity of its various peoples. Just as it would be wrong to call an Englishman Welsh or a Scotsman English, so it is wrong to call a Zara Afghan an Afghan Uzbek, an Asban Baluchi, a Nuristanis Tajik and so on. Yeah, that does make sense. Afghan nationalism as taboo. If we take taboo to mean any divinity which is prohibited or object which is untouchable or unmentionable, Afghan nationalism can be identified as a taboo, for it is once for it is as as what? For it is at once prohibited, okay, cool, untouchable and unmentionable. Over the decades, most issues in Afghanistan have been discussed, questioned, criticized and reappraised nationally and openly, with the exception of one, Afghan nationalism. Afghan nationalism, or Pashtunism, refers to the whole array of attitudes and beliefs which lie at the basis of the notion held by Afghans of their racial supremacy over and above all the other ethnic groups in Afghanistan. According to these beliefs, the Afghans have the right to rule over the area today known as Afghanistan. Furthermore, this racial supremacy is regarded as a gift from God to the Afghan people, and it is seen by them as a charter for the establishment of social, economic, political, cultural and administrative structures needed to constitute a nation-state. According to Afghan nationalist thinking, the country bordered by Iran, Pakistan, China and the Soviet Union is called Afghanistan and its inhabitants, Afghan. It was founded by Ahmad Shah Durrani and was later revived by Abdul Rahman, from which time onwards it has been ruled by Muhammad Zai family. Sorry, uh, ruled by the Muhammad Zai family. While all the inhabitants of Afghanistan are referred to as Afghan, the Afghan or Pashtun tribe is more Afghan than others. For many, even the name Afghan was not acceptable they believed that the correct name for the people inhabiting the area should be Pashtun. Similarly, the history of Afghanistan is regarded as consisting of no more than the accumulated histories of the reigns of Afghan, Amirs and Pashtun tribes and people. With respect to regional relations, it is claimed that even before Ahmad Shah, Afghan, Afghanistan enjoyed mutual relations with Iran, Central Asia and India. The origins of the Afghan people have been traced back to prehistoric times, um, while today their more recent Aryan roots are emphasised. Okay, pause. I'm not going to lie. I There's like too many words right now, and I need to breathe really quickly, so let's digress. What shall we think about? Um, let me know if you have any thoughts on what you're listening to. I feel like listening and reading are very different in terms of how you intake... I was going to say data. Damn, my work's getting to me. But how you process information. That's still very work-like. Oh, wow, okay. Um, what else can I tell you? So I received a um, necklace today with my name written on it in Bengali. It's something I custom ordered like a month or two ago. It came from a company called Zudo. You can search for it online or on Instagram. And um, it's kind of nice. Like I think it's a little bit thin in terms of the lettering. But I wanted to get one. Like I'm only saying this because it feels somewhat relevant, right? I'm saying this because like I'm Bengali and I wanted something as a cultural piece, uh, like remind me of my roots or whatever you want to call it. So that's why I got this. 
and um, I also have a necklace from a different place and it says my name in Arabic so to be honest if anybody ever forgets my name I can just show them my necklace I'm kidding that's not why I got it because my name means noble in Arabic and then obviously I'm Bengali so I wanted it in Bengali as well and um, if you do want to purchase your own you can use my code NABLO for 15% off on Zudo they have some other things if you're interested you can take a look but yeah that came today I like the packaging I'm kind of happy with it I wish the lettering was slightly thicker, but I can't really complain. It's quite nice, and the customer support was a lot better than other companies. And you know what? I would just name drop them. Zidori is another company I've ordered from in the past. In fact, that's where I got the Arabic one from. They suck. They're terrible. Like, just take my word for it and do not, like, just boycott them. That's all I will say. So unprofessional and so rude. But anyway, um, I don't know why I brought this up now, actually. That was a very bad digression. Um, I think we should go back to reading. <laughs> Maybe actually before we do that, just let me know if you have any cultural pieces. Of course, like clothing and stuff, that's slightly different. I have shawar kameez, I have saris, I don't actually wear them too often. Um, I actually have some Afghan dresses as well, which is a bit more relevant to today's reading piece. Um, but in terms of things that kind of mark your identity a bit visibly with accessories that you can wear more often, do you have any of those from, you know, your culture, like a necklace in the language? Or maybe a bracelet, or perhaps mm, like a scarf or something. Let me know. I'd be interested to hear. And also, like, did you get them from the country directly or something else? I'm curious, so do let me know. But uh, to continue where we left off, where exactly did we leave off actually? Ah, uh, okay, cool. Going back to reading now. So, neighboring peoples um, acknowledged. How did I say that so wrong? Restart, I'm going to do that again. I'm keeping it so real with you guys. That's just how we roll here. So, neighbouring peoples acknowledge only the margins of Afghan studies and history and are in themselves regarded as being of little historical significance or value. It is by extension of this approach that Afghan domination and rule is justified and its success hailed. Furthermore, it is claimed that during this period and process of Afghanization. Oh, nice. That's like sinicization, which is like the Chinese version. Um, the other peoples of this land have been assimilated and have gradually adopted an Afghan identity. Pashto is represented as a historical language and was made the official language of Afghanistan. Its teaching made compulsory by government policy nationally. This romantic chauvinism, which has dominated society in Afghanistan for over a century, has even influenced and made its way into the perceptions and analysis of foreign scholars. Afghan nationalism, or Pashtunism, as a mechanism for tribal domination and oppression has been enforced upon society and the people of Afghanistan for over a century. The more recent theorising on Pashtunism has unfortunately been much aided by foreign powers as well as scholars and writers, albeit untimed unwittingly. The result has been the emergence of a false identity of Afghanistan as a country. This false identity has also been mythologized by those same unwitting foreign writers. In some cases, the myth portrayed has been so unreal and romantic that it has even surprised the Afghans themselves. Let us look at the factors which have contributed to the emergence and sustainment of this myth. The following are, in my opinion, the major contributing factors. First, the beginning of the 20th century saw the emergence of nationalist feelings and thinking among, uh, among the educated urban elite in Afghanistan. Lack of internal political stability and the vulnerability of the 
intelligentsia, followed by its practical annihilation after the 1929 coup d'etat, coupled with the growth of fascism in Europe, and in particular in Germany, and the emergence of the latter as a superpower, all helped prepare the ground for the growth of extremist Pashtunist thinking inside Afghanistan. Extremist urban elite Pashtunists, who benefited from the full backing of the government in Kabul, seized the opportunity offered by the prevailing international and national atmosphere to establish Afghanization. Wait, what? Afghanization. No, oh my god, I just inserted an I where it's not meant to be. Afghanization. Afghanization. Why was that so hard? Oh, okay. Hmm. Afghanization, fundamental state policy. <laughs> in practice, the implications of this new policy were manifested in all areas of life and government. For example, economic investments were made exclusive in Afghan-inhabited regions. And then there is a long quote, I think. Wait, what? Oh, okay. Sorry, I got confused because somebody is like, um, how do I say put a comma around this section, as in somebody's annotated it, I'm reading a digital PDF, if it wasn't clear already. So yeah, for example, economic investments were made exclusively in Afghan-inhabited regions, hundreds of thousands of Afghans were brought over from Pakistan and settled in areas throughout Afghanistan. Afghan tribes enjoyed exemptions from both tax and national military service. Oh, whoa, really? Um, Special Pashto language schools and universities, along with the education grants, were established and provided exclusively for Pashtun students, even from uh, Pakistan. And finally, Pashto was established as the national official language of administration and education bodies. Mm, perhaps the most consequential step taken as a result of this new policy was the total rewriting of the history of Afghanistan on the basis of this Pashtunist ide ideology by Anjuman e Tariq. Um, in brackets, historical society. Under the strict supervision of the Pashto Academy from the 1930s into the 1970s. To further these aims, extensive research was carried out on the Pashto language, culture and traditions in order to establish and justify these as a superior body of thought and beliefs. So, um, I have to quickly do a task for work, which I actually feel like is very needed right now. Because, as you can tell, it's come to that point where if you have listened to my other episodes, you will not be... This isn't new to you, okay? You shouldn't be surprised. But if you are, you know, I think my concentration is spinning a little bit. And um, clearly the words are getting to me. So I will be right back, okay? Stay where you are. And maybe go get some water or something, okay? See you soon. Or, damn it, I always say that. You will hear me soon. <laughs> okay, and we're back. I guess for you I didn't actually go anywhere. But I am back now. And again, I mean, I said this before, but I want to apologise. Please don't take this the wrong way. The vibe of my podcast is very informal. This is just how I am. And I will probably read this book in my own time. I mean, I will. PDF? Book? I don't know. I will read this text in my own time because I was already interested in reading about this. But I just thought reading it on a podcast episode might be beneficial for other people to also gain some awareness. Awareness? What the hell did I just say? Um, and like use this as a stepping stone to gain further knowledge and if that is what you plan to do then feel free to dm me on instagram for further reading or even like a link to where i got this i'm sure i could arrange that for you but anyway continuing where we left off a second factor responsible for the continuation of the mythical image of afghanistan has
has been the very inaccurate picture of Afghanistan as portrayed in Western by Western scholars and more recently the media. Oh my god, yes, so true. <sighs> the media, the media sucks. Like, um, I think I mentioned this in another episode, but for very, like, for a very brief example, um, how in a lot of Hollywood films, they always portray certain countries, especially Afghanistan, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, I notice it's mostly those two places as very impoverished areas, very violent ridden, and they have that weird grayscale slash sepia filter overlay um, on the scenes where that are shot in those um, countries. What that means is like basically when there's a scene in Afghanistan, for example, the the shot just looks very orangey and murky. Murky, that's a good word. And it's a very, very small tool that is used, but it has a big impact, I think, because subconsciously you associate these places with like dirt or you just look down on them. Um, so you need to be really conscious of the media you consume is what I will say as a takeaway point. So there's a quote now, which is, when most foreigners use the word Afghan, they're usually thinking of Patans, forgetting that among the country's inhabitants are the very substantial minorities of Uzbeks, Hazaras, Turkmen's, Turkmen and Tajiks, not to mention the smaller groups. This image, which gave a view of Afghanistan through one keyhole into the country, the Khyber Pass on the northwest frontier, was initiated by the first encounters of British India with Afghanistan. During the late 1700s, when the British Empire in India was expanding towards the northwest, the recently established Kingdom of Khorasan had become subject to internal fighting over the death of its founder, Ahmad Khan Abdali. His successors were happy with the name of Khorasan, and in any case were too busy fighting one another for power to concern themselves with the renaming this newly conquered land for some time. Meanwhile, the British, on their march to the Hindu Kush, had experienced their first encounters with a section of the people of the new land, the Afghans, whom they were also to deal with later in their more formal contacts with Kabul. That is so... I mean, that sentence is quite unsettling, do we not think? Unable to advance far into the region and ignorant of the presence and identity of other ethnic groups in this new land, they took to referring to all inhabitants as Afghan. This encounter, along with the ensuing three wars between Afghanistan and Britain, which occurred during the following 120 years and their associated bittersweet memories, combined with the bravery, self-sacrifice, pride and directness displayed by the inhabitants of Afghanistan, led to the creation of a particular romantic image of the peoples beyond the Khyber by many British travellers and diarists of the time. Later, these characteristics, some admirable, others less so, were attributed more, more widely to all Afghanistanis, um, to include those inhabiting both sides of the so-called Durand line. With the emergence of the Pashtunistan, oh my god, I'm doing it again, aren't I? Pashtunistan, yep. Issue and the peaking of the domination of the Pashtunists in Afghanistan, these exaggerated and unrealistic accounts and portrayals were in time taken up by the Afghans themselves, who then proceeded to further exaggerate and romanticise them. Virtually all the foreign works that have been written and published on Afghanistan are a reflection of this romanticism, including such authoritative studies as The Patans by Olaf Karo, 1986, and Patans by Ridgway, 1983. I just want to let you know that I have read this paragraph five times maybe, but you know what? I am going to keep going because persistence is not my middle name, but it is something that I value. 
<laughs> so here we go. As a consequence of the above two factors and the turn of events since the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1978, this originally British-centred myth has been further perpetuated by both foreign and indigenous journalists, filmmakers, poets, fiction and non-fiction writers. It has now become an image so universally accepted that few would consider questioning it. Perhaps the most influential and therefore misleading misrepresentations have been made by those recent entrants in the field of Afghanistan studies, such as Ahmed, 1986. Clearly greatly influenced by events since 1978 and the existing misrepresentation of Afghanistan, Ahmed sets out in his writing, writings to provide social scientific justification and explanation for the generally discriminatory tenets of Pashtunism. For example, Ahmed goes to great lengths to explain and add historical credence to the notion of Pashtun Wali, the alleged Pashtun code of conduct created by the aforementioned Pashtun Tolana um, in its attempt to justify and promote the supposed supremacy of the Afghan or Pashtun people. The combination of these three factors has resulted in the creation of a taboo which comes to the surface with every attempt to discuss, discuss issues such as nationality, nation, rights, the constitution, or questions such as that of identity and ethnicity in Afghanistan. In other words, the taboo of Afghan nationalism. The other side of the coin of Afghan nationalism is the crisis of national identity. National identity crisis. Robert Canfield, in my opinion, comes closest to identifying the complexities of Afghan, Afghanistan society by describing it as a nation suffering from a crisis of social identity. Canfield first identifies social identities as cultural phenomena, embodied in customs, emblems, institutions, lexical categories, etc., and they imply relationships among people. They are assem essentially normative constructs, entailing concepts of obligation, status, authority, and the like. 1988, um, colon 185. He then proceeds to identify and analyse the crisis of social identity in Afghanistan on the basis of this definition. While he makes some new and interesting points, his analysis gives rise to two questions. First, can the situation in Afghanistan be accurately defined as a crisis of social identity? If a people have not succeeded in resolving the question of their national identity in the first place, how relevant is it to speak of their social identity? This is relevant because what are we faced with in Afghanistan? What we are faced with in Afghanistan, sorry, is a fragmental rather than a national or even a plural society. It is my view that fragmental is the most accurate description of Afghanistan's tribal history. Oh no, tribal society. Yes, okay, society. And that therefore the root crisis in Afghanistan is a crisis of national as opposed to social identity. That is to say that no national identity has as yet been forged. Second, why confine the crisis of social identity to the events of 19... Wow, this whole paragraph. Oh, okay. Um, second, why confine the crisis of social identity to the events since 1978? While the outcome of many events in Afghanistan over the years has been ultimately determined by internal factors, the events since 1978, nevertheless, cannot be truly understood unless they are viewed as the inevitable outcome of external as well as internal factors at work in the region over the past hundred years or so. National identity crisis is a historical phenomenon. 
brought about by the contradiction and incompatibility between the social awareness of individuals with respect to the to their historical heritage and roots on one what on the one hand okay yes and their present social reality on the other hand some examples of the consequences of this crisis are found in the struggles of the indigenous people of Palestine, Kashmir, Northern Ireland, East Timor, Tamil Nadu, and the Kurds and the Basques. The conflicts one witnesses every day in these regions are the inevitable outcome of the post-colonial era, in the sense that the great majority of today's national borders are the direct legacy of the end of colonial rule. When arbitrary boundaries were drawn and enforced on newly formed nations, feel like that was a very powerful sentence. Please go back and listen to it again and let's all reflect on it. But I will carry on reading. The crisis of national identity can thus be defined as the disparity between nationhood and nationality. For example, countries such as Israel, India and China cannot and do not reflect the historical identity of the Palestinians, Kashmiris and Tibetans respectively. This leads to the cultural, social, political and economic dissatisfaction and alienation of these peoples. Afghanistan is another example. Another side note from me. I don't know if you can hear the background noise, but I have been rudely interrupted, which means I think I'm going to have to cut this short. I think we're almost at the 40-ish minute mark, so, I mean, it's not that bad. But if you want me to do a part two, let me know, because, as I said, I will be reading this anyway. But if you want to hear it, just let me know, and I can try to do a part two. If not, do DM me on Instagram, at Nablo, and I can send you the link directly, or, you know, you can take your own initiative to read this if you want to. But yeah, to continue. In order for a country to achieve a national identity, it must fairly represent all its inhabitants. It must have a name with which they all identify, a culture which does not alienate them, but instead is representative and reflective of their historical, social and spiritual needs, aspirations and values, and a political structure and economy based on justice and equality. Only then can there be what? Only then can there be reconciliation between nationhood, nationality, and ultimately individual identity. Returning to our examples, we can see clearly that none of the respective governments of Israel, mm-hmm, India, or China fulfill these conditions for acceptance by their alienated populations. In all three countries, large sections of the population are alienated and marginalized by the dominant political and social structure, culture, economy, and the very name of their respective countries. It is precisely for the expression of this dissatisfaction and alienation that they struggle and are willing to make every sacrifice, including that of their lives. The crisis of national identity may at times arise in reaction to the presence of non-indigenous forces, such as the white Afrikaners in South Africa. In this case, non-indigenous powers dominating the country have chosen to disregard the national identity of a particular indigenous group and have forced onto them instead an alien identity. In other instances, this crisis may be the outcome of the domination by one clan, tribe or nationality from within the same borders over another or other sections of the population, such as the domination of the Tibetans by the Chinese, the Kashmiris in India, the Tamils in Sri Lanka, or in the case of the Afghans over Afghanistan's other ethnic groups. In both cases, of indigenous and non-indigenous domination, the oppressed struggle, resist, and sacrifice relentlessly, while the oppressor suppresses, dominates, and discriminates. And I think that's a really good place to leave off. Unfortunately, that's where we have to stop for today. But as I said, if you want me to continue, 
like and record it, then let me know. Um, I hope what you heard so far piqued your interest or taught you a few new things. That's always a very good starting point. Like I said, please share your thoughts if you want to. You can record an audio and directly let me hear your beautiful voice and I can share that with your consent. Or you can DM me on Instagram, whatever you feel. So yeah, have a great day. Stay safe. Continue to learn about new things and um, recommend me new books as well if you want to. Bye!